Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at In the movie Ford versus Ferrari, which I've, I'm a holy man of God, I've never seen. Uh, a friend told me about this. So if you want to email me, you can do that. You can email mark at um, hotmail.com. But Carol Shelby, played by Matt Damon, takes Henry Ford II on a ride in a, in a Ford GT40 prototype to persuade him to invest in the GT40 project. The entire drama of the movie uh, hits its crescendo. Uh, Ford executives have been the entire time plotting and conspiring and scheming to take over the project. So Shelby, again played by Matt Damon, is, is, is aware of all of this, and he makes a risky decision to ask Henry Ford II to take a ride in the GT40. So Henry um, Ford II has this experience in the car which marks a pivotal movement in the movie, a pivotal moment, and I want you to check out this scene. You ready? The name on the middle of that steering wheel should tell you that I was born ready, Shelby. Hit it. Attaboy. It's about right now the uninitiated have a tendency to soil themselves. to see this, <laughs> to feel this. Now, this is not a machine. Does anybody can get in and easily control? Absolutely not. I had no idea. Now, you want to win Le Mans. You really want to take first place, Kim Today, yeah, 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 that was funny, right? Today, some of you have no idea how good God is. And without sounding uh, sacrilegious and cheap, Henry Ford, on one level, is a microcosm of where many people are at in the church. We know facts about God. We, come to, we, we, we do Bible studies every now and then. We come to church and we hear some thoughts about who God is. But for many of us, we really don't know him. You see, our model of spiritual transformation, I think I can say this as a pastor, is thin in the church. In other words, we have taken knowing about God and detached it from a deep, loving, experiential relationship with Jesus. And many of us are like Henry Ford II, where we're not driving the car, we're not in the car, we know facts about the car, and we have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we come to church every now and then, and we read our Bibles every now and then, but God has something more for you today. I think this detachment from knowing about God to really knowing God in the realm of astonishing love is spiritual robbery. 
Some of you have been robbed of this dynamic relationship of being loved and loving your father. You see, theology is crucial in our understanding of God. We need to think about God. Can I get an amen? We need to reflect on his goodness. We need to systematize theology. I love teaching systematic doctrine, so I'm not hating on theology proper here today. But the goal of theology is not simply knowing about the hypostatic um, union of Jesus. Rather, it's a relational knowing of the living God who loves you in astonishing ways. Living in the realm of God, in other words, is why you are here today. The goal of our life, the goal, the purpose, the telos of our life is to be loved by the Father and is to love in response and then to mediate this transformative love back to the world. You see, Henry Ford was a different man before he got into, stepped into the car and then after he got out of the car. Before he knew about the car, after he knew. You see, this is what I want for everyone in the room today in their relationship with Jesus, except for your 49er fans. Everyone else, just pay attention to me. I want you to know more than just some facts that God is good and that he loves you. I want you to know more than some good preaching. I want you to know more than, oh, that podcast guy said this about God. And those are wonderful things. And we need those things and they're crucial when it comes to our spiritual formation. But what I want for everyone in this church, because I think this church is the greatest church in the United States of America. I want you to know God. I want you to get in the car today. I want you to stop just thinking about God and I want you to move into a new season, transition into a season of what Nick, chosen guy, actor, earlier said of experiencing the radioactive love fire of the Holy Spirit. Wow. You see, um, we're in a series. We've been asking a lot of different questions. At the beginning of the series, we asked the question. Again, it's all connected to growing in our relationship with Jesus and moving into spiritual maturity. The first question that we asked is, do you believe that God is really good and he's fully competent in running your lives? The following, the following week we talked about, man, are you hiding from God? And do you trust that Jesus is enough for you? How many of you trust that Jesus is enough for you? Last week we talked about, hey, God has a purpose, not just for other people, God has a purpose specifically for you. The question that I wanna ask today is this, is your relationship with God half-hearted? Are you the sort of person that loves God if he only gives you what you want? Do you only attend church when you got some free time? Once every six weeks or so? See, I'm, I'm saying this without any form of judgment. I love you. Don't hate on me, okay? I love you. Do we love each other? Okay. Some of you, um, uh, you, you, you give because you feel forced by God to give, and yet God has so much more in terms of generosity. What sort of person are you? Are you a wholehearted, devoted follower of Jesus, or are you half-hearted? Studies have even confirmed many different things, that a person that earns more money in their life, they give less percentage-wise. My professor, in his recent book, In the Way, his name is Steve Walker, uh, he says this, I'm gonna paraphrase him, in my unscientific observations, and, and, and I'm saying this, in the least judgmental way, we're mostly talking about Presbyterians east of the Mississippi, no one here, okay? But when it comes to Christians, most Christians attend church infrequently, once a month or once every six weeks. Most do not read or study the Bible outside a church service. Many struggle to give much of anything to the kingdom of God and live generous lives even when they want to. In fact, the average churchgoer, this is shocking, spends more food on their dog and cat each year than what they give in the offering and building for the kingdom of God. No judgment here. I get it because no one in here, no, this is not you. This is a church down the road, okay? For others, work or workism, as, as some experts call it, is the defining feature of our lives rather than God. 
We love God here today, but we just love work and success and status more. We call this ontological likeness. It means, here's the, here's the thing. Many of you have been given wonderful gifts. Some of you, you love to teach, and that's wonderful. Many of you love to coach, and that's wonderful. Many of you love to play ball, and that's awesome. Many of you love to run your company, and that's great. Some of you love to clean, and some of you love to raise your family. And, and there's so, so many of us have wonderful gifts, and those are good things given to us by God. But what happens is if those things are stripped away, especially as Americans, we don't know what to do with ourselves because the defining feature of our life is work. We define ourselves by our success and status and our work over and against who we are in Jesus. You are a beloved son and you are a beloved daughter in Christ. That is who you are. And no one can take that away. Hell can't take that away. The powers can't take that away. Your homeboy can't take that away. That voice that lies to you can't take that away. Circumstances can't take that away. Come on, somebody. Struggles can't take that away from you. And yet we just define ourselves by ontological likeness. We don't know how to be. Why? Because we love success more than we love God. We love God. We just don't love him wholeheartedly. I don't like awkward silences, but I'm just going to let it sink in. Like I say this all the time and it's silly. I'm dating myself, but we are addicted to what Drake has often been saying for years and years and years. We started at the bottom and now we're here, right? What does that even mean? Right? And then he goes off on some stuff that we can't even repeat. Lord have mercy. You know, some of you know that song. Okay. I don't, because I'm a holy man of God. <laughs> what, is, what, is he, what, what, what is he What is he? instantiating in that song? Well, it's, it's, it's success and status, right? This is, this, is, this is how we find fulfillment in our lives. That we take these good things and we put them on the level of God and, and then we allow them to define us over and against the purposes of Jesus for us. And then um, we have the big spiritual problem in, in the words of one author, and we say this often, but if the devil can't make you bad, he's going to make you busy. Some of you, you don't have a problem with cocaine. You don't have a problem with moral scandal, but you have a problem with distraction. Neil Postman, a famous critic, he didn't even believe in God, but in the 80s, he was, he was big, and he coined the phrase as the title of his book that we are, as Americans, amusing ourselves to death. I, I'm going to say, I'm going I'm to fine-tune it a little bit. I think we're distracting ourselves into spiritual death. We have ESPN, good thing, right? We have YouTube, we have YouTube TV, we have TikTok, we have Instagram. Is Facebook still a thing? I don't know. We have gamers, we have Google, uh, we have Audibles, we have Apple Music, we have Spotify. We can go on and on and on and on and on and on and we are distracted with so many things that we do not have time for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's like when I was a young man, some of you don't know this, I'm dating myself again. Uh, there's this restaurant that my parents would take me after church. It was called North Chuck Wagon. Lord have mercy. It was a big, huge buffet. You go in, you don't even know where to start. You got the ice cream. That's where I usually started, you know. You got the roast beef. You have the ham. You have the chicken. And you got those mashed potatoes. And it was a disorienting experience for a 12-year-old. I loved it back then. The problem in our cultural moment is that we cannot sustain a life of distraction and live wholehearted lives to Jesus. You see, the problem is that, in the words of one author, well, all these tools and technology that we have have made our lives wonderfully efficient. It also conspires against our relationship with God. It conspires against depth. It's in the words of one expert, a virtual conspiracy that is responsible for a permanent attention disorder. We are attentive to so many things that ultimately we are not attentive to anything, especially the loving voice of our Father. Like we know when that guy ran a 4240 at the combine, and we know when Steph Curry a couple weeks ago threw up 60, right? And last night, Steph Curry, did you see that game? wonderful game, right? I love Steph Curry. And we go on and on and on about facts and facts and facts. And we know all this information. And yet we don't have time for the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is we settle for knowing about God rather than having a deep experiential, loving, dynamic relationship with our Father. 
Many Christians have forgotten that the Father, like a good shepherd, desires to be with us more than we want to be with him. And he wants us to know his voice. Your Father in heaven, as we often say, is not a non-communicative deity. He has a voice, and there's a quality to his voice. And he wants to lead you in wisdom, and he wants to show you the way forward. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And what's the next little clause? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Love this. Jesus wants to teach us and lead us experientially into his loving presence. For example, a common practice of shepherds in the world of Jesus in the ancient Near East was to combine their flocks at night in one enclosure. This provided protect, protection for the sheep and friendship for the shepherds. In the morning, shepherds would call out their sheep by individual names as they walked away because the sheep were, so, I love this, so attuned to their shepherd's voice, they never got lost or confused by other voices. Guys, this is what I want for you today. In today's world, it, it, this, is, this, is, this is crucial. This is crucial for Christians. We need to discern the unique cadence and quality of God's voice. The problem Please hear me, and I'm not being judgmental, and I'm also speaking to myself. We are many times attuned to fear, shame, regret, anxiety, dysfunction, which dominates our consciousness and our thinking. In fact, the dominant consciousness of many Christians is not the loving, caring, wise voice of the Holy Spirit. It is fear and anxiety and regret and shame and unhealthy sin patterns of thinking and emotional scripts that God has not planted in your heart and your mind. And we are attuned to the voice of the flesh and we are attuned to the voice of this world and we're attuned to even demonic voices when the voice of your father is saying, I am here and I have a plan and I have a purpose for you, says the Lord, and I'm gonna lead you out of your exile. I'm gonna lead you out of your dysfunction. I'm going to lead you out of your chains. I'm going to lead you out of your bondage. I'm going to lead you out of that fear. I'm going to lead you out of that struggle. I'm going to lead you out of that addiction. I have plans for you. <laughs> However, we have what we call the frozen chosen, right? And what this simply is, is that many Christians and believers find themselves stuck in spiritual growth year after year, and they keep on going around the mountain, the same thing, the same frustration, the same problem, the same dysfunction in their marriage, the same frustration with their lack of self-control when it comes to anger. And God's desire for you is to have freedom today. God's desire is to deliver, it's to save, it's to fill you with his spirit, it is to transform you, it is to sanctify you, it's to fill you with his righteousness, it is to forgive you, it's to empower you, it's to turn you into a person that you never thought could possibly happen. Jesus wants to set you free today. And yet what happens is, because we, we have relegated our understanding of our relationship with God about having just simply facts about God and not experiential knowledge of God, we have a plateaued spirituality. And so we're stuck. See, the danger with this is that if you want to move into this experiential, living, robust, dynamic realm of love and being loved and responding in love, a half-hearted relationship with God will never get you there. Half-hearted relationship with God, in other words, creates an illusion of Christianity, please hear me, which eventually leads to disillusionment. There are a lot of people here not here, but in our world and in our cultural moment that are deconstructing their faith. I'm not judging any of them. I know many people have experienced horrific things. And I think in the church, we need to condemn sin. Can I get an amen? We need to restore people. We need to speak the truth of love. Can I get an amen to all of that? This is not a commentary on people and the deconstruction of their faith. I'm just simply trying to make a point that because of half-hearted devotion to Jesus, in many cases, we create an illusion that we're actually living a Christian life. Yeah. So we assume coming to church once every six weeks, ah, I'm a Christian, and then reading our Bible maybe once a month, I'm a Christian, 
And then over time, disillusionment begins to creep into your heart. Why? Because you're not hearing the voice of God. Why? Because you're not getting any victory. Why? Because you're not experiencing the real lived presence in your life. Why? Because you're far from God and you don't even know it. And what happens is we start naming Christianity dysfunctional based on illusion which is predicated on a half-hearted devotion to Jesus. And I think there's many people in the church world today that are saying in the heart, is this all you have, God? Here's the thing. Everyone in this room is going to hit a wall. Everyone in this room is going to experience pain. Everyone's going to experience, can you hear me with my mic down here? A trial. And some of you are going through it right now. It's, it, Jesus promised there will be tribulation. But thank God I have overcome the world. But when you hit the wall, you have to make a decision. If your relationship with Christ is half-hearted, you have to make a decision in that moment to either go through that wall or to give up. And this is what happens with so many people that I know and I love their relationship with Christ deep down in their subconsciousness was a half-hearted devotion to Jesus. And they hit a wall. And they hit a trial and a very difficult situation. And rather than getting through it and moving through it, they gave up on God and they're no longer in church. Today, what I want for all of us is to move from knowing about God to knowing God to knowing God. And everyone said amen. amen. So we, here we come to Mark chapter 12. And Jesus quotes the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 5, infuses it with Leviticus chapter 18. And he begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Jesus essentially takes, and I'm going to just get, get through this really quick. Give me two more hours. Okay, thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. Like, <laughs> Jesus takes 613 laws, right? He looks at the, the entire tabernacle cultus, the Mosaic law from the Torah, the prophet, the writings, and he summarizes our love, our loving response. And we'll talk about that. Before he does that, he quotes the Shema, the Lord our God is one. Jesus is not making a, an ontological uh, claim. He is making a metaphysical claim that God is so sovereign over all things. I, I love what Mark um, Thornton said a couple weeks ago. You, you eventually you're gonna have to come to a point in your life that either God is sovereign or death is sovereign. Either God is sovereign or your problems are sovereign. Either God is sovereign or sin is sovereign. Either God is sovereign or sickness is sovereign. Either God is sovereign or fear is sovereign. And the metaphysical claim within the ancient Near East, when they said this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, is, is a claim that God is sovereign over Chemish, Molech, over Baal, and all, Marduk, and all of the ancient gods. If you said this in the first century, it would have been easily understood as God is sovereign over Mars and Apollos and Zeus and the Greek pantheon of, of, of little demagogues and deities. If we say it today, what we're saying is that God is sovereign over money and fame and success and America and we can go on and on and on and over cancer and over difficulties. God is sovereign over all things. But this sovereignty is not relegated just to power. What we find in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is not only God is sovereign over all things, God is the God of love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God claims, Yahweh claims over his people, I didn't pick you. Because you were great. I didn't pick you because you're perfect. I didn't pick you because you were the least messy people in all the world. No, God said, I set my love upon you because I love you. And then I brought you into the promised land by my grace. 
When Jesus says, the Lord our God is one, he's making a metaphysical claim that God is sovereign over all things. He's the one that made dolphins and mountain ranges, and he's the one that created primordial nature. He's the one that is in charge of all things. He's running the cosmos, time and space. He did not create cats, that's demonic. I'm gonna say that every single Sunday. But everything else, right? He sovereignly made it all. But this sovereign God is not sovereign as an authoritarian. This, this sovereign God is a God of astonishing love. John the Beloved declares with convincing passion in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave us his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, in the surprising twist, we find that we are loved by being, or I'll say it this way, we love by being loved by God. Or we are loved into loving. Or, here's the thing. This makes perfect sense to me. It might not make perfect sense to you. You don't carry God. You don't carry your faith. God carries you. out of an everlasting relational dynamic love that he pours out on you every single day. Many of you, you beat, you've been beating yourself up this week and you're filled with the regret. I just wanna to say to you, Psalm 63 says, I told myself my foot slipped, but your steadfast love upheld me. Many of us assume that we're carrying our love, we're carrying our family, we're carrying our faith, we're carrying our future, we're carrying our bodies. That is why you're so messed up in your mind. That's why you, you just work from an assumption, a tragic misunderstanding that God is a demanding being when that is the opposite of who God is. And God is inviting us into this wonderful realm of astonishing love, of being loved and learning how to love in response and then mediating that love outwards to our family, our, in our marriages, to our, our world and into the streets. Can I get an amen? amen. The Lord our God is one over all things, and that means he loves us. So much so that he has not withheld anything from his people. Not even his beloved son. Colossians 2 or 3, I think, says that Jesus confronted the full horror of evil and took it into his body at the cross and experienced agonizing pain and a suffering of being radically alienated from his father so that you and I could have life. That Jesus on the cross was like a buffer. Come on, somebody. Like he told his disciples, I'm like a mother hen, and there's a barnyard fire, and then I'm taking my wings, and I want to cover you in my wings to protect you from the fire, to protect you from the destruction, to protect you from death and sin and hell and the powers that want to destroy you. Jesus went to the destroyer and said, here I am, and confronted it at the cross in love and exhausted its power. Um, a couple nights ago, my, my youngest set of twins, I was putting, putting them to bed, and we heard this big thunderclap. And one of my sons, my king, can everyone get up to king? He's my little king king. He's, I just realized he's my little king king. The sweetest, he's our, he's our sweet, compassionate king. Anyways, he was a little, he was a little curious about the thunderclap. S-C-A-R-E-D, okay? And he didn't know what to do. And so he asked, Dad, can you come and sleep in our room? And I remember as, as the thunder kept on going and, and the kids were a little bit nervous and a little bit scared and we prayed with them and I prayed with them and you know, we, we, I, I did my very best as a dad just to comfort them. Finally, they went to bed and I remember the next morning, King came up and said, Daddy, thank you for taking care of me and laying down with me. And I remember thinking about that very moment, and I think it's illustrative of what Jesus has done for us. As a father, 
in a sense, here figuratively, I was a buffer. They could still hear the echo of the thunder and the storm outside. Thank God for our enclosure, our house. That's what we call a house, enclosure. (laughs) I'm a builder, so I know how to use words. (laughs) I'm such a wordsmith, my God. So our building, I mean, our home, our box, no. Thank God we had our home to protect. But as a father, my, my, my loving presence functioned as a buffer for my children. So they could still hear the echo of fear and the echo of the thunderclap, and they could see the lightning and they could see the rain come down, but their father was the buffer. Some of you, you need to hear this today. As, as sons and daughters of the beloved son, Jesus right now, no matter what you hear, I want you to understand it's an echo. Yes. It's an echo. Jesus has already buffered, already confronted the worst hell can bring to you. I got my mad preaching face on right now. That everything that hell can come or throw at you from the kitchen sink to fear and anxiety and hopelessness and circumstances. Guess what? In Jesus, it's already been defeated. In Jesus, you have the victory. And I'm talking to myself. Fear then is merely an echo. Jesus, out of his astonishing love for us, has won the victory for you. You and I. One um, a theologian that I love, very dense, profound thinker said this, I often don't remember my dreams, nor do I put much stock in them, but several years ago, I had a dream, in his words, that caused me to do both. It highlights the most important of all truths that God is love, and that only by letting that kind of love into our lives can we save ourselves from disappointment, shame, sadness. And then he continues, it went something like this. For whatever reason, and dreams don't give you a reason. I was asked to go to an airport and pick up Jesus. It was arriving on a flight. I was understandably nervous and frightened. A bevy of apprehensions beset me. How would I recognize him? What would he look like? How would he react to me? What would I say to him? Would I like what I saw? More frightening yet, would he like what he saw when he looked at me? With those feelings surging through me, I stood as one stands in a dream at the end of a long corridor, nervously surveying the passengers who were walking toward me. How would I recognize Jesus and would his first glance at me reflect his disappointment? But this was a good dream and it taught me as much about God as I've learned in all my years of studying theology. All of my fears were alleviated in a second. What happened was the opposite of all my expectations. Suddenly walking down the corridor toward me was Jesus smiling. Beaming with delight, coming straight for me, rushing, eager to meet me. Everything about him was stunningly and wonderfully disarming. There was no awkward moment. Everything about him erased that. His eyes, his face, and his body embraced me without reserve and without judgment. I knew he saw straight through me, knew all my faults, all my weaknesses, my lack of substance, and none of it mattered. And for that moment, none of it mattered to me either. Jesus was eager to meet me. In a moment like this, one forgets everything except that God is here. There's no place for fear or shame or wondering what God thinks of you. That's a lesson all of us must somehow learn, somehow experience. We live with too much fear. Partly it is bad theology, but mostly we fear things and we even fear God in an unhealthy way because we've never experienced the kind of love that is manifest in God. We take for granted that anyone who sees us as we really are in our unloveliness, weakness, pathology, sin, insubstantiality, will in the end be as disappointed with us as we are with ourselves. At the end of the day, we expect that God is disappointed with us and will greet us with a frown. The tragedy and sadness here is that we avoid God when we are most in need of love and acceptance. Because we think God is disappointed in us, especially at those times when we are disappointed in ourselves. We fail to meet the one person, the one love, God, that actually understands us, accepts us, forgives us, cleans us, delights in us, and is eager to bless and smile at us. We love 
by being loved. The Lord our God is one. Then Jesus tells the most important commandment within this dialogue and his conversation partner, the inquiring lawyer. And he says, as a loving response, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Three things here, and then I'll be done in four hours, okay? Three things, couple minutes, I wanna say. First, Jesus intends to transform us into people of love. Jesus implies within this little dialogue with this interlocutor that the kingdom of God is deeply relational. You see, the love of God is a relational reality. Love, by its very nature, is to be drawn out of itself towards someone else or something else into a life of generosity. Everyone say generosity. generosity. And self-giving. Yeah. By the very nature of love, you're being drawn out of yourself. Yeah. I, I remember I took my, my little Presley and uh, I took Quincy to um, Boise State men's basketball game a couple weeks ago. And uh, I remember my wife and I, we were trying to find tickets and it was, it was the day of, and they're playing Utah State. Utah State was what, 18 in the nation and we don't like the Aggies. Let's move on. Boise State Broncos, come on, go Broncos. Not Vandals, go Broncos. Come on, can I get any man? Okay. So we're looking for these tickets and I, I had made a commitment because my, my son Presley wanted to see the Boise State Broncos, that we're gonna buy tickets. Finally, we find these, we discover these tickets, parquet, 12, 12 seats up from the floor, and it was amazing. And my wife and I looked at the price and we're like, um, okay, and I remember turning to my wife, well, we got some 17 chickens that we can sell, you know? <laughs> we got a lot of kids, maybe we could, you know, what's wrong with me, okay. <laughs> but in that moment, out of just love for my sons, and because I wanted to see Presley and Quincy watch this game live, Generosity was not an issue. You see, love draws you out of yourself. It doesn't bury you inside yourself. You're not stuck in yourself. You are pulled out like this gravitational pull away from your own self and your own thoughts and your own desires and your own longings into something larger, into something bigger, and guys, into something more fulfilling. There is nothing more fulfilling when you see someone out of an astonishing act of love mediated through you by your father as you see joy and delight on their face. Yes. And being in relationship, of course, being in the love of God as image-bearing creatures, we discover, please hear me, our fullest sense of meaning and purpose. And you will discover that in the truest sense, what our culture promises but never delivers, you will always find your truest sense of self in God. When you are drawn outside yourself and when you learn generosity and when you get in the car, can I get an amen? And you move from just knowing some facts about God and you start moving into this experiential, dynamic, relational love with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a Trinitarian kind of love. This eternal relationality of self-giving love is inviting you, God himself inviting you to experience that. Yes. And when you experience that, you experience delight and relief and shalom and security. And that is what I want for you today. Amen. Second, Jesus makes it very clear that this love is a whole person thing. It involves your heart. Your heart is the exec executive center of your body. It's the essence of who you are. We can call it bodily power, right? It's the very thing that moves you. Not only is it the very thing that moves you, your mind is also a faculty. It's your perceptual world. It includes your longings and your desires and your emotions and your feelings. And God says, I want your heart and I want 
your mind, and I want your soul. Soul is everything that integrates every faculty of your person. We're doing a little anthropology here today. And then God says, I want your strength to love me with all of your strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. The Hebrew equivalent of that word strength simply means possessions and prosperity and influence. So God is essentially saying the greatest commandment is to love him with your entire person, with your possessions and with your gifts and with your mind and the executive center of your being and every faculty of your person. Give it all away to him because God has given everything of himself to you. Third, loving God. If you just read it in its narrow and in the strictest sense, apart from the entire drama of scripture of God loving his people and rescuing his people, some people will come up with a tragic character caricature of this passage. They'll think, oh, loving God, it's a command. Jesus is authoritarian. This means loving God is a joyless um, squashing of my individuality. I got to do things that I ever wanted to do. I got a D in history, and now God wants me to translate the Bible. Or if I'm going to follow God, I'm going to have to marry someone that I don't even love. Or if I follow God, that I got to go over to the mountains, I got to grow a big, long beard, and I got to become a monk, and I got to do things that I never wanted to do, right? Or I, I just, loving God means I just, it's discipline, and it's drudgery, and it's exhaustion, and it's tiring, and then one day we'll get to heaven and we'll have some maybe some joy there but I don't even know if I want to have some joy in heaven because I don't really like what's going on right now in my relationship with Christ you see this is the tragic misunderstanding of loving God we just work from an assumption this is a joyless grab this is the squashing of one's individuality it's, it's something that we don't want to do at least this is what our culture thinks but it's not that rather loving God with our whole person is the very thing you long for. It's why you're breathing here right now. It's why you have consciousness right now. Your bones, and I'm gonna be melodramatic right here, and your DNA ache for this. To have your mind filled with beautiful thoughts and then to mediate that beauty back into the world, that's what I want. To have the executive center of your being, your essence, so transformed by love that when you confront evil and suffering, rather than responding in kind and ev with evil and retribution, you respond with love and blessing. That's what we need in this world. You see, the problem is in some parts of the world, the church curses more than it blesses. Why? Because the executive center of the church, the heart, its essence, has not been transformed into a collective body of love. Wow. And then take our soul, everything that integrates every faculty. Imagine if it's directed and channeled towards the loving presence of God and mediating that and reflecting that back into our families and our marriages. It would smash the dysfunction in the world in at least five days, maybe a little bit longer. And then as we direct in a loving gaze, the gifts and the talents towards the kingdom of God, God is lifted up and the power of the spirit is released in astonishing ways that changes lives. This is what you long for. You know that success that you think you long for? That's a cheap substitute. You want this. You know that, that status that you want, or you've been thinking about that one thing, or you've been thinking about that other thing, you've been longing for it. Those are, the, 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 that could be a good thing, and I'm not saying that God hasn't put, it, put that in your heart, but every longing and desire of your heart is connected to a bigger longing, and that is to be loved by God and to love God in response. That is where you find the truest meaning of life. Everyone said amen. amen. So I want, I want you to go from knowing about God to knowing God. I want you to get in the car today. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus is inviting us into loving, gentle confession. One of the things I want us to do is I want us to name the gaps where we just simply know about God, but we haven't been living an experiential way with him. I want you to name your lack of generosity. I want you to name 
your lack of commitment. Everyone in this room, we all have to name something. Is that one perfect person in this room? We have to name our half-hearted devotion to Jesus. And as we do that, we call out to God. And within that calling out to God, we are invited into the realm of love and God brings forgiveness, healing, and transformative power into your life. So my desire for all of us is, I wanna put up this circle from Steve Walker uh, in his book. This is how most people live their lives. Do you see that? We have health, family, friends, recreation, others, chores, goals, occupation. And in others, let's just put God instead of others. That is how we prioritize our relationship with God. This is knowing about God, it's not knowing God. I want us to move from this to that, where God is the center. Not just one of many important things, not just a really good priority, but I want God to be the priority, the defining ultimate reality of our lives that influences everything else. When we talk about wholehearted devotion to Jesus, we're not saying you can never go to a movie again. We're not saying you can never have fun again. <laughs> Good luck, it's gonna be boring from here on out and drudgery, you know? <laughs> we're not saying you gotta read your Bible five hours a day. What we are saying is, and I'm gonna pray a prayer of blessing, that we're gonna move from God simply being a priority to our life to the center of our life. I want God to get you today. I'm preaching. I am not satisfied as your pastor until 3,000 people who call Capital Church their home move from knowing about God, having some thoughts in their head about God, into a deep, experiential, loving relationship with their Father. John, as I close, John Wesley, and I'm gonna pray for us. John Wesley, he was a famous revivalist. Him and his brother Charles. Charles wrote over 13,000 hymns, thousands of hymns. They're on their way to convert the North American continent to Christianity. They're in the North Atlantic. They're in like a little wooden boat, <laughs> a little wooden boat, a ship. You know, I'm such a wordsmith here today, guys. Little tiny little boat enclosure, you know? Um, <laughs> enclosure. They hit a storm. I just cracking myself up. You guys don't think I'm funny. I think I'm hilarious. I should take this on the road. <laughs> and they're in this ship and they get hit by the storm. And John and Charles, they're with their, their group of English people and, and their little missionary party. And they start to, to literally shriek. In the corner of this ship, you have a group of German Moravians. They have children and women and men, and they're all singing for three days. They're singing and they're worshiping God and they have so much peace. And at one moment as they're singing praises to God, this huge wave breaks over and destroys the mass. And John at that point shrieks. He's full of panic and anxiety and fear. And his entire missionary party is overwhelmed with anxiety. And John recounts, as he looks at the Moravian Germans, they simply continue to sing undisturbed by the waves and the possible destruction of life. They make it miraculously. John comes up to the leader of the Moravian group and asks them, what, what's your secret? And he said, well, none of us were afraid because we have a deep confidence that God is our strength, that he's our king, and he's our savior. John in that moment knew something was missing in his life. He spent two years in North America and probably got a couple converts. He knew something was missing. So he went back to England. I don't know the whole story, but he found, he was reluctant, but he found a, Morav a tiny little Moravian church maybe in London, somewhere in England. He went into the back, as he was listening to the Moravian preacher, he said in his own words, he felt this strange warmness take over his life and he was never the same again. His life was transformed by this astonishing love of the Father. And it broke through his fear, broke through his anxiety, and he became one of the greatest revivalists over the last 250, 300 years. 
John Wesley was remade by the recreative, transformative love of the Holy Spirit. This is what I'm going to pray over you today. I'm gonna bless you, but guess what? I'm gonna bless you with a holy discontent. Some of you are like, I, do I need to get out of the service? <laughs> I'm gonna pray that you're gonna become discontent with just watching ESPN and kind of doing good things without spending loving time with your father. I'm gonna pray discontent over us of just simply having God as a priority rather than the center of our life. I'm gonna pray that we're gonna be so discontented that until we get into the car, until we get into the realm of God's love, we will not be satisfied by anything else. How many of you want that? Bow your heads. Father, I pray your blessing over every son and daughter in this room. As we close on this Super Bowl Sunday, go Chiefs. Lord, we thank you for your blessing. I ask that you would bless every person in this room, every family member, every soul, every man, woman, child with grace. I ask that you would keep them. I ask that you would make your face to shine on every beloved person here today. I ask that you would lift up the light of your countenance and you would bless everyone with peace. Lord, that they would begin to know the realm of your astonishing, overwhelming love. Father, our desire is to move from this thin model of, of spiritual transformation where we have a rationalistic understanding of God, but we lack this experiential, life-giving partnership with the Holy Spirit. Move us from just knowing about God to knowing you and living that out and mediating your love and your purposes to the people around us. Our desire is to love you with all our mind, our soul, our strength, our heart, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we know we can't do that without you. Lord, I thank you that you're gonna teach us to love as we learn how much you love about us. Let the revelation of the Holy Ghost be on every single person here today. Break every spirit of fear and anxiety Lord, break every chain, break every addiction, break everything that would hold us back from you and let the miraculous power of God be released in the room today. And I end here, bless us with discontent. Lord, we thank you for the good things we have. We thank you for technology. We thank you for the wonderful tools, but bless us if we, with discontent if we get distracted. Lord, let us, let us become discontented with just living a busy life. Lord, let our desires and our hearts change and turn towards you, Jesus. And I thank you, Father, that an outpouring of, of us, of, the, of a move of God would take place in Capital Church in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you for your grace. And if you love Jesus, can you give him an amen this morning? Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.